Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, cyborg anthropologist Amber Case. I just did slow video of all these people walking by. All of their tiny hand gestures, their micro expressions became really obvious. And suddenly I had tremendous compassion for them. Amber, the author of Calm Technology, will be helping us stay calm when our technologies are encouraging us to do otherwise. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. And you're on Team Human. So we just had the Jewish high holidays at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, I usually don't do this sort of stuff, but uh, my wife's mother died this year. So we went to Yom Kippur at our local synagogue. And it was, um, you know, it was a strange experience. I, you know, know a lot about Judaism and Jewish prayer and all, but I've always felt that the synagogue angle and going in this building and everyone putting on their nice clothes and all is just kind of strange. And in some ways, even a waste of time. It's like if you're taking all these rich people and all these hours and all this money they're spending on this building to go sit in there and pray these three, four, five hour things when they could just be out doing stuff. You know, it's kind of what I argued in a in a book I wrote about Judaism a long time ago. That you know, I I can see people doing studying Jewish law and or studying the literature in order to understand the world better. But the, all the sitting around and praying just felt like a uh, an indulgence. You know, you do as much prayer as you have to 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 
arm yourself or to fortify yourself to just go out in the world and do what you have to do. But I was in there and other than, you know, reading all the footnotes in these in the Torah things, which is kind of cool to do. I was listening to the prayers and it was one of them is called a Unatana Tokef. It's this prayer that they do on the high holidays, which is really creepy. It's a medieval poem. And it's like, and this is, you know, between uh, on, on Rosh Hashanah, it is written and on Yom Kippur, it is sealed. Who will live and who will die and who will get sick and who won't? It's this whole idea of the book of life and God's like writing the names of the people that are going to die that year in this book. So you're supposed to pray a lot or whatever that you're not in there. But the idea that the poem doesn't say that you're supposed to pray whether or not you get in there. Interestingly, at the end, you know, it says, you know, we can't really change what God's going to write in that book. Who's going to get sick and not? Who's going to die and not? But, uh, if you can maintain some sense of community and connection to other people, that will lessen the severity of the decree. And that was kind of an interesting one. The idea that, oh, that the reason why we're all together, the reason why we're sitting here in this room is that at least if you've got other people around, the bad stuff that's going to happen won't quite be as bad. It won't quite feel as bad. And as I looked through all the prayers and the kind of stuff that, that the Jews have been reading, you know, for 500 or so years since these prayer books were uh, developed, it's such a rough world out there they're describing, you know, with wars and enemies and persecution. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, well, gosh, this is kind of describing this moment. <laughs> Look at all these enemies and wars and what our leaders are doing and senseless conflicts and this sense of danger and waking up each morning and not knowing if something's going to happen. And it really drove home the idea that I, I've gotten to live my life and most of us alive now have gotten to live our lives in a very exceptional moment. And I mean exceptional in the sense that it was an exception. It was weird to not be at war. It was weird not to wake up each morning not knowing if someone's going to invade your town or attack your family. You know, the reality is what we're moving into now is actually more normal or if not normal, at least more typical of how humans live. You know, wake up, oh, someone just killed 60-something people in Las Vegas with a machine gun at a concert. Or, oh, Puerto Rico just got nailed by this huge hurricane of probably human origin, but the huge hurricane, and look at what happened there. This earthquake happened, uh, or this war is going on, or now we're worried about uh, uh, the the actual survival of the North Korean and South Korean people, um, given the potential for a, a nuclear war there. You know, this is normal. So you have to ask, how do you live when this is normal? How do you live when every day you kind of squint before you open your phone because you don't know what the notifications from CNN or the New York Times are going to be, or you kind of hold it a couple of feet further away? How do you orient because the impact of each one of these assaults, and I mean like news assaults, information assaults, the impact is to go into fight or flight mode. 
You know, that's the natural human response to threat. The norepinephrine comes out and you move into fight or flight, which is a solo survival-based reptile mindset. The reptile isn't thinking, oh, how am I going to work with my community to build resilience together against coming? No, it's, what do we go? Where's my gun? Where do I go? Where do I hide? Where do I have my food? What about my family? How do we change this response? Well, the way to change that response, the way to not respond in that fight or flight norepinephrine survival mode is through some kind of conscious training through, you know, meditation or prayer or community, which allows us to restore the social bonds so that we can respond and function to threats as a team rather than as panicked individuals. We can absorb the blows together. And that lessens the decree. Hi, I'm Alex Yuhas, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Michael Fredrickson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and I am on Team Human. I'm Andy Bickelman, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is the author of Calm Technology, Amber Case. So if you don't mind starting really big and narrowing down, are, are robots our friends? I don't think robots have the idea of friendship. What is a friend? Aristotle says a friend is a single soul dwelling in two bodies, mm. which is poetic. But right. would you say under that definition that a robot and a human have a soul dwelling in two bodies or it's the same no. soul? But, no. But they, that you could, as a human, store part of your soul in a robot. If it was compartmentalizable like that. Right. I mean, maybe... If we even knew what a soul was. Right. I mean, the, the question is, I guess, do we collaborate because we love each other or do we love each other as a sort of evolutionary drive? To collaborate. Oh, if they love each other, they'll take care of each other. Then they'll do better and survive more. Well, perhaps we have we have tribes, and you can't. The minute that if there's this great book called *Sapiens*, and it talked about how humans started to get born with these giant heads, and so they couldn't be born fully or even close to being mature. They had to be born at these infancy states and had to be Mm -hmm. taken care of for years and years and years. And so maybe that's the thing. Now a human needs many people around it to survive because just one person taking care of it can't also hunt and gather at the same time. Then you need other people to defend, you know, and then you need dogs to, to, to scare off things. And then you all travel together with this giant tribe and then you war against each other for some reason. But, but the initial human evolution was a social evolution. We, we evolved our big brain so that we could remember more people, so that the so-called Dunbar number could go up, the number of people you can remember and interact with. And we have language so that we can interact with each other. And then we started storing the language outside of ourselves. And then we started passing that around to people. And we started saving those stories and giving them to each other in the oral tradition and the written tradition. And then, and it, but we did all of that through tools. And so suddenly we evolved alongside our tools and all of the creatures that we started to domesticate so we could stay in one place instead of migrating around as much. And then we formed cities. 
So in a way, we already evolved alongside these tools. So first it was animals and humans plus tools, one-to-one. -one. Then we had tools that could work outside of ourselves, but we still had to control them, like tractors and grain silos to store things, to right. pause agriculture so that we could use it for our future selves instead of having to be dependent on the seasons and just the summer season. So then we could live in these super cold places and that mm -hmm. was fine and then we didn't have to hunt all the time. And then we kept going to the Industrial Revolution where we said, let's take farm tools and processes and let's put that outside of ourselves and let's start doing these, these many hands and, and not digitizing those, but big machinery. And that was fueled and there was lots of alcoholism. And then we started to take the mental self and started to externalize that in these invisible machines called robots, which the word robot comes from uh, Czech. And it's an indentured servant. Right, a slave, basically. It's a slave. And the idea is that it, it came from Rossum's robots, this Czech play. Because if you think about it, you had... In, in traditional film and theater, if you wanted to put on a play and there was a tsunami or something, you could make that happen. But if you're doing a human versus a machine, man versus industry, suddenly the human got embodied into the shape of a robot or an android and acted physically on the screen. And that's where we got all these ideas about embodied robots so that robots should look like humans when we have millions of robots right now. We have millions of search engine robots that are scraping our web for us. We have flight results that come back. We have auto-suggest in Gmail. We have robots in factories. They just don't look like humans because they don't need to. Right. I mean, there's robots in the stock market that have almost no physical presence. They're just algorithms. So if you say our robots are friends, then what about those stock market robots? Aren't they forcing us and publicly traded companies to make short-term decisions? Aren't they actually controlling us because every single thing that we do as an organic human gets put into that space and gets automated and shoved down so that we have to extract more and more value more quickly? And aren't we, if we work for those publicly traded companies or societies that run on consumptive patterns, aren't we just being controlled by the robots. Isn't that the first AI? Well, then we're the robots, though. We're being roboticized by in them. that we're turning into robots. And to say that robots are going to take over, we are already the robots. Right. I mean, that's what I've always said. I'm less, I'm, I'm less concerned with robots you know, taking over the world than people becoming more like robots. And it feels like that's what we're doing with predictive algorithms. You know, we use them not just to predict what people are going to do, but to steer them towards their most probable outcomes you know, and that's what is that but if you're reducing human spontaneity and anomalous behavior you're making people into predictable little machines mm -hmm. and then you can guarantee how much value comes from each machine and right then you have unpredictable things at the edges like art and culture and music people who can't get into that specific program system that don't really necessarily belong then they get irritated enough and you have all the pearls and the oysters well, those are the most human people of them all, though. They are the, most are the little weird ones. That notice everything too much and experience the world in an intense way and write about it and save it, like the surrealists and the cubists and all these different art movements that were all about these, these crazy shifts that were happening in culture. They saw it and they compacted it into symbols and meaning and statements and social groups. And they were tribal. A lot of those art movements were tribal. In, 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 instead of the individual thing that we have now where everybody's in repeated condos in the sky. 
we're trying to wear things only in their season and we don't see any decay and we don't have longevity in terms of like ideas or actions or it even music. It is hard that way. I mean, I remember in the beginning of the cyber revolution or whatever we called it, that it started to feel like our tribe was non-local, that we were all kind of nomadic and had either laptops to move around, you might see one here and see one there. Or you go to South by Southwest, which originally was like the gathering of, South by Southwest was closer to Burning Man than it is to the current South by, because it was the, the gathering of the tribes, the convocation, you know, and it's, it is different and it's, it's hard on a certain level to connect with the community where I live the same way I do with the Team Human people I find kind of all over the place. I mean, there might be a kind of a couple, couple in my town. I look in their eyes and I go, oh, you're, hello, human. And probably people like your next door neighbor are connected to other tribes externally to them, non-geographical to where they are. And I think that's an issue where we also had the ability to change and you know, have any of our own names online. You could just jump into one group and and you could be in multiple groups and you could do some research on the site and seem smarter and um, because you didn't have to say it right out loud and then you could change your identity again. But I want more of the, the silly web where I participate right. in the web in order to be online. You couldn't just consume the web. There wasn't enough of it. You had to participate in order to be on it. It was, a, it was an exchange. It right. was an interaction. It was a building. It or was, a web ring or something. You were on a, yeah, a it, roll of someone else's blog. Yeah, you had to make something to get something out of it. So like when I look at my phone now, can I actually create on my phone? And if I'm creating, is all I'm creating just a timestamp photo with some mechanical data that's shared on a network to get more people to look at it so that they get more ad revenue because they have to grow by 5% because they're a publicly traded company and if they don't grow, they have to die because the automated bots are trading their stock and it'll get spooked if they don't hit their quarterly report, time measured in quarters mm -hmm. instead of years or decades. So you go into some of these companies and you can't just tell them Hey, look, stop making all this money. It's not really making you happy. Just become slow and sustainable. And Absolutely not. That's what I try to do. And they don't really like that idea so much. It's not possible. So sometimes a company will hire you and they can all remain nameless. I hire to come in and help us figure something out. Or, and then how do, you, how do you work with them? What do you see as sort of your, your prime directive in working with them? Some of those companies, I, I usually don't work with companies that make their money based on ads. Because right. I don't know what to tell them. I mean, it's, it's easy. Anybody can tell them exactly how to make more money. Just have all these algorithms that test a lot of stuff. And then have social scientists come in and figure out how to optimize the time on the site. I mean, right. Facebook is really good about evolving that. Hey, you haven't seen these five updates. They won't tell you which five updates. You know, and, hey, and these people reacted to your post. But they reacted and didn't say what they said. Yeah. So you have to click on the interface and get sucked in again. I like to do this thing where I just go on Chrome and I grab some plugins. There's a Facebook blocker that just blocks the news feeds. When you log in, you don't see anything. And there's one called Gmail when ready. So it just hides your inbox and you click when you want to see it. And that way I can search for email and not get distracted. So all these yeah. distracted feeds, you know, constantly, constantly. And I always have to dig in my email to get at stuff. So I write down on paper what I need to dig for. But that doesn't solve the problem of these companies making money off of ads. I mean, that now all of the choices that they make have to serve revenue and have to serve advertising, have to serve time on site. I, and I, my question is, we can't stop that, but where does it end? Where does it supersaturate? Where does the snake eat its tail? 
I mean, because you talked way back in Merchants of Cool about how something once once it becomes cool, then the, the, the cool people can grab it. And then the minute it's been grabbed and commodified, it's no longer cool. Right. But we're kind of seeing a shift where like suddenly something's cool, it gets grabbed and commodified and it stays cool. And so like... This... Well, it's cool for the fact that it got all these likes. Right. Whereas in the old days, once you got more than five or six likes, it's not cool anymore. Better do right. something else. Right, because now it's it's not selling out. It's, oh, you sold that, that's great. Great news, now you have a corporate sponsor. Right. So that changed really fast within 20 years. And so now what does that mean? Because eventually that was gonna spin out, right? Eventually like things would become so cool and then go away so quickly. Now it's just part of the cycle. Yeah, it's interesting that that turbulence and how easy it is to get lost in there. When you were describing just going into your your inbox or going online, it sounded a little bit like a you know when poltergeist when they're gonna step through the portal into the other dimension and they tie a rope around the waist and go in, you know, or like a magician before, I mean, a, a mage magician, before they're going to do some kind of astral journey, they ground themselves in these certain ways so they can find their way back, or a wilderness explorer leaving chalk marks on trees so they can find their way out. And you're talking about the net almost as this place where, all right, before you go in now, you're going to, you know, touch ground, uh, you know, and understand what is your sense of purpose before something's going to distract you or pull you off your off your track. It's blindfolding yourself before you see the sirens or the impossible feast that once you take a bite you have to eat forever. I mean, it's funny because we have all these like Greek uh, Greek old cultural analogies of like we, we can go back and see all these classics and see, oh, that's been repeated, that's been repeated. But there are all these like magical entities, these gods that we'd have to worry about or these demigods that had these powers and these mortals would always have to deal with it. And then the gods would sometimes come down to earth and mate with them, with the mortals. And then there would be all this drama, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like we have these kind of similar things happening right now where we have these gods that are mortals and they wield these giant powerful systems. And we get caught in them in these very strange ways. And some people can get themselves out of them and some people can't and they're all caught. You know, like the the Colosseum in Rome, the minute you step into the Colosseum and you get caught up in the excitement, it's this overpowering social thing. Everything is, you know, then, and that was an issue where they just had more and more holidays. <laughs> I feel like instead of holidays, we have more and more micro-singularities where somebody cares about, you know, there was an escaped llama and then there was that dress that was blue or was it gold and everybody, and all the brands got in on it, you know, and then there was a, and then there's a hurricane. And so let's talk about that, you know, and, and real things like hurricanes get caught up in this with the same fervor and excitement as like a blue dress versus gold dress. You know, like these, these yeah. cultural moments that are, are, they come up quick and then they're forgotten. I know. And the weird thing is, I mean, and I talked about this in a, in a monologue uh, when the hurricane happened that I felt really guilty. I'm watching it and it's like category five, category five, then it goes down to four and they say it's going to hit the ground at three or something. And I, even though I'm consciously happy for the people whose houses are there, part of me is thinking, oh, darn, it's going to be less exciting now. It's like the, the entertainment value of this news story is now diminished. And that's a dangerous thing to be going on because if I'm recognizing it as 10% of my psyche, there's people or it's 90% of what they're thinking. And then they're looking at, are they looking at Korea that way? Like, oh no, we got to really blow something up here. 
Yeah, that's, <laughs> I think that's one of the, the core points is we used to, let's say before radio, everybody would have like a little instrument to play or you know, there'd be a piano in every home and if you could have one and people could sing and after dinner you'd make silly songs and you'd entertain yourselves or you'd read books or you'd write and you'd have a journal, a diary. You weren't publishing that, you know, you'd have hobbies where you didn't have to be a professional and post it on Reddit. And now, if we're kind of like kids waiting for entertainment, we're not making of it, we're not making it ourselves. I mean, I'll, I'll sit on my phone for hours, like devouring everything and I look up and say, I haven't done anything. I haven't made anything for myself and I feel bad. Yet I keep expecting entertainment to come out of this device. And somehow it's a little bit, it's, it's exciting, but then you get dulled to it, right? Like how large of an event does it have to be for people to get real excited again? Because they'll get used to getting excited and then it'll take more and more and more and more. So then when does that stop? Because that's, that's, I think that's the next Ouroboros, the next snake eating its tail. Because if, if it was originally this, you know, producing cool and then having that, you know, die, sparkle and fade, then now it's producing these news stories that are intense enough to get people to click on stuff and care and get emotional and fight with each other so that they stay on site longer. But the stories have to keep getting more and more intense uh, because people get used to them. Where's the stopping point there? Where's the next shift in the fractal? What, what happens then, right? Because right. if their answer to it was, oh, well, now it's cool to be cool and now it's cool to commodify yourself and now you're really good at producing that so that we can have more content for the system, What's the next step? Do you actually have to have disasters? You won't have enough consumers left to click on those things. At some point, you have to protect the citizens of the world because you have so much riding on them clicking on ads that you can't have them in a situation where they're so low on Maslow's hierarchy that they can't click on stuff. Right. So at some point, you have to give people enough quality of life that they can have enough stable web or, or stable cell network or enough self-driving cars that they can click, right? And that won't work. That won't work. I mean, the other... The other path I thought you might follow with this was, you know, reality TV, originally people were concerned that reality TV was going to be downgrading entertainment. And now people are realizing that reality TV is downgrading reality. You know, you know what I mean? It's like it didn't, it's not just that it affected the, 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 the fictional programs, it's reality TVs affected the real program and thus the real. Right, because now it's a feedback loop where people are sometimes acting like they wouldn't in a reality TV show, feeding that back and then filming that, and then right. making their own reality TV. Because what's the difference between reality TV? It's just a little bit longer than the micro-narratives people post on Facebook about their trip or about the fight or about that weird yogurt container that has right. some odd thing on it that they're going to show with each other. Well, and reality TV is structured. I mean, it is structured. It, they have setups. They set up these situations for maximum conflict. Let's put people in a room, you know, and one of them's going to have to get kicked off. Or let's put a bunch of models and only one of them's going to get to be the head model or the, the winner model. And it engenders a, uh, well, it's that it was the, the, the Omarosa doctrine. You know, she was one of the first kind of winner types on uh, uh, Donald Trump's reality show. And where she did these awful things to people, but it was all appropriate because we're in a game, we're in a contest. So I'm gonna lie, I'm gonna cheat, I'm gonna steal, I'm gonna do whatever. So the rules of reality and the morals of reality are temporarily suspended. Or shifted to reality TV's values, you know, or, you know, uh, uh, 
most young people's first experience of an election is American Idol. So if you're applying your American Idol ethos to your presidential election, then it's not about logic or instrumentalizing your vote to make a better place. It's voting your heart. Who do you really feel? Who do you identify with? Who? And that's a very different thing. You know, the person who should be the, the winner of American Idol should be judged on different criteria than the person who's gonna be your, your mayor or senator. And if you were to produce an American Idol in which people were judged on better, better systems, better, yeah. better things, I wonder if that, first, I wonder if it would have any people watch it. And secondly, I wonder if that would feedback loop into other voting systems. Right, reality, a reality TV of uh, people solving real... Solving real problems and doing yeah. complex things <laughs> and doing maintenance. Like reality TV of the stuff that people forget to do because they're on their phone all the time. Like reality TV of how to vacuum your floor really well and somebody just vacuuming. Somebody making some food. This real-time, uncompressed, you know, a cooking show that actually takes the four hours that it takes to cook, where you have somebody talking to you, entertaining you, and, and, and giving you stories while you're waiting for the turkey to cook instead of pre-cooking it, you know? This, like, decompression of time instead of... Well, even better, slow motion. I, I was in London so two days ago, and I just did slow video of all these people walking by, and suddenly I had tremendous compassion for them. Because when I slowed them down, all of their tiny hand gestures, their micro-expressions became really obvious. And like all the different things that they were doing, their body language, everything became gorgeous. Mm. And I said, well, I would, I would just want a channel of just people walking by just so slowly, you know, just kind of remember that everything is just, you know, here right now. It was very meditative. That was the beautiful thing about uh, David Lynch's you know, reboot of his Twin Peaks was he would have these really long scenes where supposedly nothing's happening, yet everything is happening. I mean, he had great actors, you know, he had Laura Dern or whoever, you know, people who really knew how to do this. But, you know, he had one scene that was like four and a half minutes of somebody sweeping a floor of a bar while the other guy read the paper. And I saw some of the reviews saying, what the heck, this is crazy, You're expecting us to sit, it's, you know, it's For torture. four minutes, yeah. For four minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's torture <laughs> to sit in four minutes for something that doesn't move, whereas usually you're sitting for two hours and you're moving the screen. And that's the funny thing, there was this film that was released, uh, I forgot when, like 2006, I saw it in an art gallery in Portland, and it said, we're gonna do 10, 12 minute vignettes, that's it. And we're not gonna move the camera. We're going to leave it running for 12 minutes and whatever happens in the scene happens. And it was in a really idyllic looking old town in the middle of nowhere. And the person took two years of film to get these tiny 12 minute vignettes. And one of them was this girl on this beautiful hill and she's just reading a book. And that's it. That's all you got. Her turning a page. You don't get to see what she's reading. You don't even get to see her close up. It's tremendously boring, and then she gets up and she leaves, and you have to sit there and watch the spot where she was for like another three or four minutes. And you sit there and suddenly you just slow down. Not only do you feel how long you're sitting in a seat mm -hmm. during a typical movie, you don't even notice because it's so fast. Like American movies are like, there's no peace, there's no quiet, there's no introspection. It's just bam, 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 bam. What do you remember after it? Nothing. You know, I remember this film because I remember 
being there with each person that was filmed. The best one was, not only did half the people leave during the intermission, but the people who stayed behind, we were all so excited. We were like sitting on the edge of our chairs. This one scene, there's nothing. It's just this idyllic, beautiful space and a bus stop in like this canyon and it's a beautiful day. And then this kid walks up and he waits. And you have to wait with the kid for the bus. Uh -huh. Because think of how many times like you would have to do that as a kid. You would yeah. have to wait five or six minutes and you feel how long five or six minutes is because it's really long when you're waiting for something, especially a bus. And the bus comes up and picks the kid and we're all like, yeah, we cheered. You know, the bus is here. It's just what it feels like when the bus shows up in real life, right? You're, what a relief. The bus leaves and again, there's nobody in the space and we have to watch it because the thing is all of this space in the world and all of this waiting is all simultaneous. Right now there are people waiting for the bus. Right now there are people on pause. But we never see that because all the stuff we see in cinema is super compressed. Well, and those people who are, are pausing and waiting for the bus, most of them are sitting on a cell phone or, or scrolling through something anyway, so they've lost that experience of waiting. They've lost, and I understand because it's initially uncomfortable. And if you sit through it, like I like to do this thing with people at uh, usually at conferences, we'll go out to a nice dinner, say, okay, we're gonna put our device in airplane mode and put them in our pockets, but then we're gonna sit here and we're not gonna say anything for like seven minutes. And that's it. We just have to sit in silence, not saying anything. And initially it's really uncomfortable. People are like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I can't look at your phone. And then eventually like people really settle into it and it feels really cozy. You know, it's like people used to have each other over and like they'd hang out with each other and not talk or like mm -hmm. listen to music on a really bad shag carpet that was impossible to vacuum, you know, these things like coziness, right? And they'd spend time, they'd experience time. And so if you're constantly space and time filling with these, you know, little devices in your hands, these little two-dimensional virtual reality boxes, then you're never experiencing that time. Well, for some people, it, it feels as if you need to do it because we're all freelance and there could be work or there could be a job opportunity or something. You know, that the, it, it, as a freelancer, I know because now my work comes to me through my iPhone. You know, it's hard, but if you do discipline it away, uh, you actually get more done and make more money if that's what you're, you know, what you're after. Yeah, you make a lot more money because you're consistent and you know what you're doing and you're choosing. And you're not choosing the things that distract you or, or diminishing or, or this weird waste of time, you know. It's hard though because, and, and I've noticed this now that I travel all the time, I'm on this five-city tour for this Calm Technology book, which right. relates to this, uh, yeah. which I just don't use my phone in all these interstitial spaces and see what happens. I just get into all these conversations. You know, there's this one guy on his phone, and now that I look at his expressions, like this guy next to me in one of the airport lounges, looked like a friendly person. I watched his expression while he used his phone, and it was one of boredom. It's like he doesn't really want to be on his phone, but there's nothing else to do. So I started talking to him, because I figure if he's looking so bored, it's like, oh, thank goodness. Like, <laughs> whereas, like, a lot of times people might do it because they don't want to talk to anybody around them. But in this case, it's like, what else are people bringing on planes anymore? It's laptops and iPhones. And when I used to go on planes when I was little, it was like kids had coloring books and you had building blocks and Legos and, mm. you know, you had journals and you had books and, you know, newspapers, like all this weird stuff. Or people just talk to each other or pillows or whatever. 
Uh, and it was all this different multimedia. And now you've just got screens and people expect to be you know, entertained because they don't want to spend that time. It's like, oh, I don't like this time, so I'll ignore it. Well, what, could, what if you do like the time? What if you're missing out on the time in front of you, which is kind of, it's boring, but it's something, isn't it? Like, what about the reflection? Like, when you turn your computer to airplane mode, you don't have any web for a while, and you're like, oh, I'll rearrange all the icons on my desktop. What if you can't do that with your brain anymore because you haven't turned it off to all this external input? Like, I mean, it's definitely a first world problem, though. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, if publicly traded companies had it their way, they're, they're, they will saturate the first world and they'll have to go everywhere else. Like, why does Facebook want to put a bunch of Wi-Fi balloons in Africa? They need more users. They have to expand. If they can't deal with China, then they've got to deal with some other giant continent of people. You know. So what, they'll put balloons that have Wi-Fi? Well, or WiMAX or something? Yeah, or something like that. It's like, self yeah, and, and if you're doing self-driving cars, you get 30% more time of people's lives who are doing those commutes and then they can suddenly look at their device. You know, you get more, you get more space. All these in-between spaces that we have. How I'll many times a day do we touch our phone? 9,000 times, especially if you use like, you know, Tinder or something like that. Uh, people are touching their phones all the time and looking at them like hundreds of times a day. And it's all these in-between moments. Like the minute they get bored with a thing or the minute they don't want to do a thing, then they switch over. And there are all these micro moments, like interruptive micro moments. Well, even, I mean, you could argue that the longevity movement is just to create more eyeball hours on devices, right? <laughs> if we can get people living 20% longer. Well, I wonder how long all of this is going to last because our phones don't even last for more than a year anymore without becoming piles of trash. You know, so, so, or just really slow and then everything else gets fast right. and the new normal is to be fast, you know, at the same speed. Our phones are already so much faster than, than they were when they came out, but the standards and expectations of the other people around us are like, it needs to be faster. And plus people getting stuck with these automated systems. Like I checked in the hotel and the woman was like, hey, um, I'm sorry, our system is really slow. You're, you're, you're apologizing on behalf of the technology, yeah. Uh, do you well, it's like, like the other system? one, like the, the, I can't do that. It, it won't let me. Oh, I yeah. would like to do it, but the, the machine won't let me. Yeah, yeah, sorry that that piece of code hasn't been created or, you know, these, these weird things where we'll get trapped in these kind of situations and as we try to automate, you know, at scale. And, and eventually we'll externalize all that labor to somebody else. Like now instead of just going to the supermarket, not thinking, putting our stuff in a cart and having a silly conversation with somebody on the way out and knowing them because you go there every week we don't know them, and there's just some guy that's or girl that's trying to help us get our get our groceries and punch numbers in the machine, you know. So is that great? I mean, that automation. Like, I'd rather have like a little market where I know the people and buy my food there. And right. Well, they've externalized the cost of the checkout counter to the to customer. You, to the customer. Yeah. And and same in a hotel. Once they start auto checking into a hotel, you know, they'll they'll do that too. And then they'll keep doing that. How right. many other things can we handle, you know? And then what are we going to do in a world that's just populated by people standing in line not talking to each other and not talking to a checkout person? Just touching kiosks. Just yeah. touching kiosks. Yeah, a kiosk-centered world. You know, what? What is that great? Like, I don't... I like talking to people. And maybe it's good if you don't want to ever talk to anybody. But then are people going to talk to each other in the checkout line? I mean, how... How are we going to get our socialization? Where's that going to go? Like, don't we need it? Isn't that necessary? Well, at least it used to be 
you'd socialize even just on the margins of the other stuff you were doing. Yeah. You know, water cooler talk or whatever it was <laughs> called. I don't know if they have that anymore. People are bringing bottles, I guess. I yeah, mean, they're bringing the little canteens. Yeah, they got little coffee pod machines they can talk around, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it, if we really did make the world that convenient, and I don't think we are, but if we really did, then we'd have to have designated social <laughs> time. Designated social time. Yeah. Well, isn't that like isn't that like Shabbat? I mean, isn't that that's what that was for? Yeah, or at least sacred time. Or time to or celebrate being human. Church or a festival. Here's the pumpkin harvest festival. Geographical based celebrations. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. That's what I'm I'm working towards on Team Human. It's so easily, it's so easy to go down the rabbit hole of algorithmically controlled reality and people are turning into vegetables and the, we're externalizing all of our waste and the people in the developing nations who are climbing on top of old monitors and mountains of mercury poison to yeah. pull out a couple of parts they can then sell to Apple's reseller or whatever. And you can't, can't get hired anymore because the algorithm says that you're not good enough. Right. So there's all that dark. But if the placebo effect is going to take effect, if nothing else, but the placebo effect of happiness, you know, steering people towards uh, better outcomes, uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's not silly to try to envision happy scenarios. And the networks themselves are built on a platform that was biased towards openness. And that's their kind of their critical flaw that if openness is, is the sort of original, you know, Vint Cerf web ethos, and it's embedded in the very, in the core logic of these, of these programs, of these platforms, then uh, we kind of have a safety valve. Yeah, I mean, because we're so connected in this really open, Alexander's concept of Oikumene, like this idea of the whole world open door policy under, you know, like who is the best studier of, of, you know, the Oikumene? It's like Alexander the Great and then, and then Zuckerberg studying, studying this person, you know. So we have all these open doors and so that openness can be um, messed with as well. I mean, there's no reason why we have to just sit here and we can't prank the system back. I mean, if, if, if companies are going to use automation to consolidate us, we can use automation to consolidate those companies right back. We just have to be more clever and silly about it. You know, pranks and art and stuff like that. I always wondered why people weren't using artists to, to beta test their software. Because artists will find all of the weird issues and turn it into art and also find a way to explain it to people. Yeah, Rhizome's interesting that way as a group. They pair technologists and artists and have them do weird experiments together. You know, or um, I get really interested in uh, the Yes Men and how they're playing, you know, with... Uh, there's the silliness to it, but it's dead serious as well. And the silliness is the only way it can go through, too. I think silliness might be a human thing, then. Right? What are things that machines can't really do? Think in these really weird ways and go between the cracks and... Well, it is true. I mean, that's uh, the homo ludens, man the, you know, man the player that if you, any situation in which you can play, you're reifying the humanity of the situation. So when you've got the Pentagon sitting there in the Vietnam War and Abby Hoffman having his hippies hold hands around the Pentagon to try to levitate it, 
uh, that was their protest, Levitate the Pentagon in the 60s or maybe early 70s, um, that's bringing deep silliness into it. But it was so threatening because who's the humans now? You know, the Pentagon is now this, now looks like a giant occult, you know, sigil. And the people are around it trying to levitate it. They're the, they're the, the sweet, silly, mushy humans. Well, it's like the self-driving car that somebody put a, a salt pentagram around. I saw, yeah. It didn't work anymore. It kept seeing it as a double line. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think that's the kind of thing, like, well, that one was a really silly prank to see how quickly you could disable a car. But the whole, the whole Abby Hoffman thing was just absolutely ridiculous and silly and fun and, and a cultural movement. But yet, it was inherently destabilizing and threatening. And therefore, like, you know, it had to be figured, you know, people had to figure out how to shut it down and use the rhetoric and the images of the hippies against them and destroy them. I mean, because now it's a joke. <laughs> right. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a marketing, you know, stoner-looking thing with tie-dyed t-shirts and, like, you don't you don't study any of the ideas behind it or any of you know the the cybernetic sublime or any of those early computing poetry that people had around the hate ashbury street you study it's just an aesthetic and it's just worn out and it's bleached away and so nobody can go any deeper into it because actually discussing it would would be nobody could take it seriously well that's the other thing i mean really loving something is almost uncool you know <laughs> oh yeah no that makes a lot of sense there's like the idea of oh you can't go too deep because then you'd be committed and, and if you're committed then you're weak and then you can't and maybe that's in response to the idea that things are changing so quickly and things are so temporary you can't even love your phone for more than a year you can't love your television like everything dies but that's another important thing like the idea of somebody maintaining their car, you know, from the 1950s, it was simple enough and you'd work on it and like, you know, parents would teach their kids how to maintain a car. I took a class in high school in auto mechanics. I knew how to change my points and plug. My car doesn't have points and plugs anymore. Things were made unfixable because if they're fixable, then somebody in some town with a little shop can add value to the thing, you know, and yeah. the central company you know, did Samsung or LG or Sony, they don't want someone fixing their stuff. And they want someone that at best buying a big replacement component to shove in there, but really uh, buying a new one. So what happens if they just increase the price of the iPhone so high that you have, you know, you can buy it and you've got to fix it? Because, you know, my screen is cracked on my phone and so are a lot of people I know. And there was this, this, this resolution that got passed that said you can have third parties fix devices. So this this is happening now. Right. Where now you I can take this. You can have them do it, but it's relatively unfixable. It, I mean, you can get a new screen. Most of stuff is relatively yeah. unfixable. It's the screen and like. But that's the thing. But that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, especially if we're talking so much about externalization, I'm trying to get our focus off the sort of end result for the relatively wealthy American consumer. I mean, because that's one eye on technology and we understand, oh, they're manipulating us like this and that and making us buy more stuff. And so we have to work harder and all that. But we're the thin band of upper middle class consumer buyers of, of this stuff. You know, there's a much larger, to use an Apple word, much larger ecosystem of supply chain you know, workers and slaves and people on whom the, the disposed phones and things are going to, you know, it's like my user experience is the least of my worries at this point. Right. And, and, and like trees, they drop leaves and they make more trees. 
the, we drop our devices and just throw them into a big pile and then nothing happens to them. They don't contribute to the, I mean, they contribute to the ecosystem in the way that like you throw away your phone so you have room to buy a new phone. Well, and they contribute to the ecosystem, the the, the real ecosystem, with, with you know poisonous. You know, yeah. you, you, Walter Kern was telling me the other day he uh, his his phone was dead or whatever, so he decided to open up and see what was in it, and he was poking around, and it exploded, exploded at him because the battery. On the one hand, you seem like a way technologized person. You've got systems. You've got uh, uh, your you know your DNA. You look at life, sometimes it feels like you look at life almost with an airplane view at how is this all organized, how am I going to optimize this, optimize my life for this, optimize for that. But for you, that doesn't imprison you. That seems to open up, it, it's not, that's not you. That's mm -hmm. this work that you do in order to then get to be you and be silly and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all there as a place to open up the extra time to be the Kairos time, the Greeks, the Greek thought of Kairos versus Kronos. The Kairos time is that time of being, watching a sunset, like falling in love, like, and then in Kronos time is these scheduled appointments. So if I do these things and understand myself more, I can be more preventative. But sometimes people confuse me. They're like, oh, you're like a robot. I'm like, no, 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 no. These systems are doing some of these things so that I can think longer term. And it will take years before I, I mean, I now, I, now, I know how much I don't know, but it will be years, it will take years before, you know, anything comes out of that and that's fine. Like I can, I can afford now to be slow. And that's nice, you know? And, and I did, I mean, for two months this, this year, I just spent time in Portland, Oregon, exploring all these different weird scenes, like experimental art and film. I'll go back and dip into those where like you feel really alive and there's no audience for this very small audience for these things and it's fun you know people are experimenting there's also this need I think for people to be okay being amateurs do something for yourself that you don't have to share and compare and contrast with the global community you know take some time off for yourself you don't need to be a machine you don't need to run 24 7 you need to recharge too this is more recent. I mean, I, I did a startup and I sold it. I worked 100 hours a week for four and a half years. And afterwards I was like, whoa, I'm missing a lot of things, you know, so to reintroduce myself. I mean, you saw this comic that I was, that I was writing for a little mm -hmm. while. It was about this robot that was filled with a world of other robots and he loved human things. And, and he, was, he was like, there must be humans somewhere. And they had uploaded themselves into a server facility and they were just sharing memes with each other and they were really, really depressed. And he kind of put them back together. He said, no, we need to be alongside each other. Robots and machines need to be alongside each other and amplify each other's benefits. And the robots without the humans were just stagnant and the humans without the robots were stagnant. And so we, you know, we can have the best of each. The problem is that we're trying to amplify the wrong stuff. We put humans on pause instead of amplifying that and giving us more time for art and beauty and culture. And then we have these machines try to automate the stuff that they're not good at. And those end up making mistakes and causing a bunch of issues. Like the airlines automatically gouging the prices up for the hurricane. Or dragging someone off the plane and banging yeah. his head, which was an algorithm that told them to do it. It was an algorithm that told them to do it. So that's that funny thing. Of we're just going a little bit in the wrong direction. Hopefully it'll get a little bit better. I want to be positive about it. And I try to have my relationship with technology be positive too. Um, you know, 
it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard because there's plenty of negative patterns. Um, but I think it's possible for people to do and they should do it and they'll feel better. The problem is that if we don't have time outside of time to be reflective, you know, take yourself on a road trip, or, or if, if you can't because you're too busy, then write down just a, a list, you know, just a, a segmented list, like not enjoyable, not worthwhile, you know, profitable and worthwhile, like probably, you know, but it's really hard to do because people can't get that extra time and space because they're like, oh, I have time off. Well, let me use it to go to another place and I'm spending all my time in transit. So I'll just spend all my time watching, you know, YouTube. And, mm. Okay. Okay. We'll sit in a room for a couple hours. It's just a couple hours without your technology, maybe playing some music, but don't touch it and think, see what happens. Let your phone run out of battery. And, and sit with deal someone with else. Look or in their sit eyes. With else. Look in their eyes. That would be rare. <laughs> Look in their eyes and and don't you know you don't need to speak. You don't need to talk about your day. You don't need to futz with the, the Sonos system. Go through that uncomfort for a little while, and re get to know yourself. Figure out who you are. And if it's uncomfortable, don't be too hard on yourself. But figure it out. I mean, you owe it to yourself. You don't have too many years and the technology is still going to be there and you're going to be okay and you're not going to miss the important email. It's going to be fine. <laughs> well, let's do like the, uh, you know, when uh, two llama guys find each other in Tibet in the mountains, you know, two awakened masters. Apparently what they do is they just, uh, they sit together. They don't talk or they just sit. So, uh... Let's do that, all right? We'll let this show end, and uh, you and I can sit together for, let's do like 30 minutes and see what happens. Team Human Friends, this is Steven here, producer on the show. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and a special thanks to our Patreon subscribers and supporters. If you're a listener who'd like to subscribe and help sustain this show, visit patreon.com slash teamhuman. Help us out also by giving us a review on iTunes and spreading the word among your friends. As always, I'd like to thank those who've contributed music to this show. Our intro features a great song from the band Fugazi, Thanks to Discord Records for permission to use that clip. In the middle, we had a segue from Josh Citrin and the Team Human Band. That's an original that a Team Human listener composed for the show. Thanks, Josh. And at the end, we had my friend Our Fox segued into a noise soundscape of mine that's playing in the background. Check out the show notes to support the musicians, the guests, and the other supporters of this show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Media Squat next week with new strategies for keeping this strange and wonderful project called Humanity alive and well. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.